Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. On today's show, this is the first show that we've managed to record in lockdown. So we're uh, having a strange one and we discuss how weird the world suddenly got from underneath our duvets. Uh, I discuss with Eamon the new Beastie Boys documentary, which is wonderful, but slightly tainted by the fact that a lot of the footage was created by uh, a guy named Ricky Powell, who cracked on to me in an extremely creepy way one time at a festival. Don't worry, I'll tell you the full story very shortly. And speaking of the dark side, my dear friend Dr. Stephen Graham talks us through noise music and why it's worth listening to. And finally, our special guest and describer of his phonographic memories is the one and only Marcus Brigstock. Uh, jazz buff, radio disc jockey, uh, fabulous stand-up comedian and actor. He describes um, his metamorphosis from a lonely gothic caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly-like podium dancer at Ministry of Sound. And to be honest, this is one of the most beautiful, honest and personal phonographic memories we've yet had. So you're really in for a treat with that. Shall we pod? Let's pod. Let's pod. <laughs> Even tell me what goes around. What goes around is uh, no one goes anywhere around anything and we're all stuck inside. Which is why I am now, as I speak to you, inside a cardboard box which is stuffed with um, feather pillows and is covered in a large, heavy tog duvet. I'm upstairs in a house which has uh, glass windows all along the front side of it, which face directly into the sun. The doors and windows are locked. It is 115 million degrees (laughs) and I am melting quietly, all in the name of Pod. It's the DJ experience you're replicating in a tiny boiling hot box. Honestly, it's like the eclipse in 91 in here. It's it's absolutely banging. You were telling me about your little thing that you've got because you've dispensed with the duvet fort, which I thought was pretty much a must for all DJs Mm. and presenters at this time. But you've got a gizmo. I've invested in a gizmo. Uh, It's uh, basically, as we were saying, a, um, a foam Iron Maiden. It's like an Iron Maiden for a microphone. <laughs> so it, when you say Iron Maiden, I mean, you don't really mean a coffin full of spikes, do you? Well, it's, you? yeah. Well, it's like the, the spikes are made of foam. And um, I should really write copy, shouldn't I, for, for should, uh, audio for products? For someone else. <laughs> <laughs> the spikes are made of foam and it's like a foldy thing on a stand that goes all around the microphone encircling the microphone with these uh-huh. foam spikes and then you put your face in the middle of it and supposedly so, it blocks out background noise. So does it lock to your face like the alien? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining some sort of like helmet effect which is like <laughs> straight on you. Do you know, if it was in a helmet, it'd be much more convenient. No, I have to manually lean in my own face and uh, block up the front of it that way. Oh, it's hard being a radio presenter. It's really tough, it? You have to manually lean in with your own face. Well, now listen, um, here we are back again. Um, This is our first proper chitter chat in the age of the lockdown. So um, I guess we're just going to have to give it a nod and a hello and tell people that's what's happening. Otherwise, they'll wonder why we keep talking about being inside duvet forts and things like that. (laughs) Um, It's been pretty strange, hasn't it? Uh, yes, it's been weird. I mean, I don't want to, uh, obviously it's a terrible time and all mm. of that, big disaster. 
But like I've been quite enjoying uh, the change of pace and change of lifestyle. But yeah, it's been it's it's been a strange one. How have you been coping with it apart from missing the food and the money and the because you enjoy DJing much more than I do. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And I have to say uh, it has been hard um, just because uh, it's you know it's it's it is my whole life do you know what i mean it's like mm. it's what i do so every weekend i go out and i play two three sometimes four gigs and i spend most of the week getting ready for them and trying out different mixes and thinking what i could play and buying records and all of that stuff and then you know come the weekend i'm not seeing the people my my social life such as it is it's always been a bit thin on the ground but you know um the people in those bars uh the managers the other djs i see they, they are the they're the they're my circle, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I, I haven't really seen any of them for a long time. So I'll give a big shout out to, to my man, Ben Gibson, because I am missing him. He oh, is lovely the ben. funniest, most lovely man in the world. Um, uh, and I'm going to play the hops with him. And uh, I'm definitely missing his big sweaty hugs <laughs> while I'm trying to mix. That's for sure. <laughs> What goes around? What, what goes, goes around? around? What goes well, around? Tell me. <laughs> I'm going to tell, tell you. Hang on, sit down. T- come here till I tell you. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I've been really thrilled about um, so far in terms of like media I've consumed in lockdown, there's been so much. I've been watching so mm. much, so many films, listening to so much music. Um, but uh, I'm so thrilled about the Beastie Boys documentary. Have you seen it? I have not because it's on oh, is it on Apple it. or something flash I haven't got I don't know Tim found it on the internet Apple for me. me yeah yeah no <laughs> it looks amazing um, mm. and uh, certainly they got a story to tell for sure um, yeah and uh, you know about six different people bought me the book for Christmas last year um, so I'm <laughs> familiar with their stories and the thing about the Beastie Boys is as well is um, there's so much content. They just made so much stuff. They were so prolific. Mike D had this uh, country and Western album that he made at one stage. Like they were just, they just made so much stuff. And so like, it's the the format of the documentary is um, Mike D and Ad Rock, who I have an enormous crush on oh, and always have. Lovely, lovely. Oh, um, but they're up on stage. It was actually a live event um, where they sort of give a talk about the story of their careers and with videos. And, uh, you know, Spike Jones is there doing the video stuff. Um, I, I assume it's Spike Jones. Uh, they call him Spike anyway when they want him to change slides. There can't be that many. <laughs> exactly. Well, Spike Lee, I guess. Only those two. Um, All right, but- there's two. And they're both in New York. Okay, could be yeah. problematic. <laughs> but I was worried when I was watching it because... A lot of the photos of the Beastie Boys, particularly and the video content, particularly the stuff that was um, taken in the sort of their great heyday of like the early 90s, was taken by this photography uh, photographer called um, Ricky Powell. Do you know about mm. Ricky Powell? Famous New York sleazebag um, who had an exhibition at uh, an All Tomorrow's Parties Festival that I attended um, 10 years ago, maybe? No, maybe not that long. Yeah, it could be that long. could be longer. Yeah, must be, must 12 be. years, 12 years, maybe? Long time ago, when I was young and innocent, uh, Ricky Powell was there 
still wearing all of his lanyards from like all of the Beastie Boys tours. Yeah. I don't night. like people they come out with all of you know and you just think oh, I've got a badge from every gig. I've I know, seen. I know. But um, he came up to me and my friend and uh, offered us methadrone, which I think was the the Ooh. cool the cool drug back then. I've never taken it, but I just remember it. That that was like. Uh, uh, I just remember it being talked about a lot in Parliament at that time. And um, he followed me and my friend back to our chalet going, I got the methadrone. Hey, ladies, I got the methadrone. And then I... Oh. Uh, hey, ladies, I got the methadrone. That's like, I mean, look, if you say, hey, ladies, I got the blue flake cocaine, and at least they know you're rich. Hey, I've got the methadrone. I mean, what what have you done? Knocked over oh, a phone de- box. He definitely is not rich. He came back to our chalet and uh, I was there with my sister's boyfriend and all his friends uh, for some reason. They were kind of party guys. And uh, I overheard Ricky saying about me to one of my sister's boyfriend's friends. Hey, what's the story with the chubby one? (laughs) 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 Which is fine. I mean, I don't care. But then he sort of um, punch him. (laughs) Give him one. Listen, this ain't no shame. But uh, he took some he took some liking to me and uh, he was just all over me on the sofa. He kept going. uh, Hey, you got a nice skin tone I like your complexion <laughs> awful. he was disgusting and then it all so uh, I, I just thought this was hilarious and uh, I got him to phone my friend up and leave a voicemail I think she still has it it's something like hey hey Lily this is Ricky Powell I'm here with your friend Anne we're playing a game of uh, Naked Twister call back with instructions <laughs> uh, but the whole thing culminated it all got a bit dark and then the whole thing culminated yeah. with him um, asking if he could pay me $20 to watch me pee. And then my b- sister's boyfriend just chased him out of the chalet after that. So <laughs> it's just <laughs> the film. Was... This took a really hard left turn I wasn't ready for. I was, uh, the Beastie Boys a bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, watching you pee for 20 quid. Do you know? <laughs> well, I just, the point is. Do you know, you know what? That's not a bad offer, though. Yeah, well. 20 quid? Yeah, and this well, is. How many before... times you pee a day? Like five times? You can make 100 quid a day. Listen, I don't exactly have people queuing up. It's the first and last time anyone's offered yeah, me that. That's, I'm sure that's there's, a the neat, there's probably plenty of people doing that on the internet now anyway. Uh, um, don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, there will be a website. There always is. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, it's the same with the book, you know. He took some brilliant photos of the Beastie Boys and there's certainly a lot of them in the film and in the book. Uh, and unfortunately, that's a, a memory that's um, tangled up with my love of the Beastie Boys. That I'll, I, That's my cross to bear. For our Make Me Believe segment this week, we thought it would be fun to tackle a particularly polarising genre of music. Uh, I know Eamon is already on board with noise music. Many of the rest of us have yet to be convinced, and I thought, who better to chat to about noise than my brilliant friend Stephen Graham, a.k.a. Dr. Stephen Graham, a.k.a. Stephen with a PhD, as we like to call him. I've been friends with him for many years uh, through Irish friends, and um, he's one of those people who... You know when you know when you know your friends so well and you're so used to just being idiots together that you forget that one of you is actually really smart. Stephen heads up the music department at Goldsmiths University. Uh, he's also written a book about noise music, and uh, he's the perfect person to chat to about this subject. He very kindly uh, gave us some of his time on lockdown. He's been looking after his two kids, and uh, I think he's out for a walk with them 
uh, when he recorded this so you can hear them sort of burbling in the background and he's slightly out of breath adds a kind of sultry dimension to the whole thing but hopefully Stephen Graham is the man who can make you believe in noise music My name is Stephen Graham. I'm a senior lecturer and co-head of music at Goldsmiths, University of London. I'm going to talk to you about why I love noise music. And I'm going to give you a psychological and an aesthetic or artistic explanation for, for that love. Before I dive into the explanation, I'm going to just say a little bit about noise music. So I'll give you some context for what I mean when I say noise music. So noise music is a distinct genre of music which emerged in the 70s and 80s. Places like Japan, the UK and US, with artists like the Los Angeles Free Music Society in the US. Uh, in Japan, artists like Hijo Kaiden and Murzbo and Masana and various other people. And then in the UK, a lot of noise artists hovered around the industrial scene, so people like Throbbing Gristle and Cabaret Voltaire, and then more extreme artists like the New Blockaders and various other people. Nice. So all these artists were making sound, which was inspired in part by earlier work in the 20th century, like Music Concrete, composers like Edgar Varese, even um, more popular artists like Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart, all of whom were expanding the sort of palette of what could be included in music. So you get all sorts of unusual sounds across this work, which before would not have been counted as musical. Noise music sort of notices that and goes to an extreme. So incorporates things like distorted walls of static uh, field recordings, which are manipulated to sound unusual and strange, uh, also to cheaply produced fuzz and bang and whiz. So this is a music which is very unusual in terms of musical language and in terms of uh, genre. So my explanation for why I love it is it's quite simple in, in a sense. So the psychological aspect of it is this. Noise music really allows me to sort of escape myself. It allows me to get outside my own head, to transcend my ego. It does this both through the sort of extreme volumes which in womb you almost. It, it turns the feeling of listening into a sort of an amniotic experience. But more than that, because if it was just that, you could play any music really loud. It is its sort of centering of a, a sort of an aesthetics of failure, if you like. It's sort of flickering between language and non-language that is so powerful to me and that allows me to sort of escape myself. So if I'm in a room by myself or in a room full of other people and we're listening to noise music, the barrier between myself and those other people breaks down a little bit. It becomes a sort of an erotics of hearing rather than a sort of an analytics of listening. And what I mean by that is when you listen to noise, you're no longer trying to sort of 
pick it apart rationally, you, you go beyond the rational. It becomes more transpersonal, even mystical and psychedelic in a very, in a very powerful way. The aesthetic aspect of it, which I've just alluded to, comes in its, as I said, its aesthetics of failure. So what's really powerful to me in noise is that it toggles between discourse and non-discourse, or language and non-language. So when you listen to a track like Woodpecker Number no. 1 by Mersbow, so this is quite a famous or a relatively famous noise track, you'll be met with walls of static which feel overwhelming and potentially to some listeners will feel ugly and off-putting. And indeed that is the reaction that noise music often produces in listeners, causes them to run to the hills. I've seen it many times and so people are surprised then when, when they find out I really love this music and have written about it a lot. But to me, when I listen to those walls of static, if you tune into them and if you allow them to, to work away on you and don't just reject them out of hand as being unmusical or being invalid in some way, you start to vibrate with them and you start to become aware of micro-events within the field of static. And that becomes exciting and interesting on its, on its own terms. But what's doubly interesting to me and what's really the key for my love for noise music is the way that out of that field of static in this track in particular, you suddenly start to get a beating pulse. It suddenly starts to sound like really funky, noisy techno. Now, it's not that it becomes a techno track. It's that the music is working away within the space between a musical language like techno and a sort of musical non-language, if you like, or non-idiom, like noise. And the track's power is in its hovering or flickering between those two states. It never settles into one or the other. It always feels like it's in an emergent becoming. And I know that sounds a little bit abstract, but all I mean by that is when you listen, if you tune in and allow the track to take effect on you or, take, or have an impact, you will start to get a sense of the music itself mutating into different forms and then being pulled backwards and then mutating into language and then being pulled backwards. It's a really exciting dynamic and you find that across lots of noise music. So you won't necessarily find other noise tracks that go between what I've called techno and sort of the non-language of noise, but you will get a lot of noise which toggles between forms of sort of musical language, so more recognisable genre tropes like beating or like recognisable melody even in some cases, and then the sort of um, those things being pulled apart. You'll find all sorts of tensions like that across noise music. And so it's those two aspects for me which are complementary and which align really closely. But that's where the source of noise's power lies to me. The way it allows you to sort of desubjectify yourself and escape your ego and, and enter into a sort of a meditative, um, non-personal state of mind. But the way it also, on an artistic level, sort of hovers inside a sense of failure, a sense of um, incompletion. It never quite attains the state of musical language, but it, it always suggests that it might get there at some point. And so you're listening to it as a sort of a drama of language, language trying to form itself, language trying to find some rules and find some structure. 
so that it can it can settle and and become sort of normative if you like but the power of noise music at its best and this doesn't go for all noise music like all other forms of music there is bad and there is good noise music depending on your taste but the best examples of noise music to me work inside the interstices between language and non-language and they never quite settle they work inside failure they work inside incompletion and that's the power to me of noise music is an actor, a comedian, a broadcaster and a former podium dancer at the Ministry of Sound. He's also a music lover and a total jazz nerd and I'm lucky to count him as a colleague of mine at Jazz FM. His brilliant lip sync videos on Twitter have been keeping us all entertained and thoroughly delighted during lockdown and today he's joining us via the magic of technology to share three treasured phonographic memories. Marcus Brigstock, welcome to What Goes Around. Hello. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good. I mean, you know, it's it's obviously, it's horrendous. You know, my job's gone (laughs) and the future's completely uncertain. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't basically enjoying most of this. There's there's quite a lot to be said for that. Yeah. I mean, I spent some time unemployed during the early 90s having a really good time loafing around at raves and stuff. And You uh, know, I'm at home with my wife and (laughs) my kids some some of the time and, you know, a lot of music and the weather's been amazing. And so it's kind of like... It's pretty great. I, I wouldn't have chosen it, but it's pretty great. <laughs> but it's nice to have the option taken away. It's like if yes. I had lost a bunch of gigs by myself and I'd disgraced myself in some way or just you Again. Know, <laughs> terrible gigs and I had them all given to someone else, I'd be pretty sad about it. But it's totally out of my hands. And yeah. I'm finding yeah. it enjoyable as well. Yeah. Um, tell us about these lip syncs. How did this come about? Uh, They're getting increasingly more elaborate. Yeah, they really are. We've we've been we raised the bar too much too early. So what happened was both my wife Rachel and I had we assume COVID nineteen, but we don't really know because no one's been tested. Yeah. But we definitely were very poorly for a while. And the first day I had where I felt better, I fished a record out and put on. Um, a MacArthur Park suite by Donna Summer that is an entire side of an album. I think it's maybe 19 minutes um, produced by Giorgio Moroder. And I put it on and danced to it and sang along. And I thought, yep, I'm feeling better. And uh, so having done that, we sort of were horsing around with Groove is in the Heart by D-Light and a few other things. 
And then Rachel did Trouble by Iggy Azalea and knew every single lyric. And we were like, great, let's film that and just put it out there because it's funny. Mm-hmm. It made us giggle. And then, um, yeah, then we've done we've done loads now. We've done 23, 24 lip syncs, I think. How many, really? It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. My last rest- one was censored. Um, no. Yeah, I did Splish Splash by Bobby Darren in the bath. Um, oh. And, like, the first thing we did when we filmed it and watched it back was make sure that nothing was showing <laughs> that shouldn't be. So we were like, well, that'll be fine. And Twitter... I think it might be my nipples, to be honest. But Twitter have said, <laughs> not really, not really. <laughs> but they couldn't, be, they couldn't be specific about what it actually was. It was nope. just o- over, it was just overall, just yeah. explicit by, by the vibe of it. It's not exactly a sexy song either. <laughs> I don't think it's sexy at all. No, I mean, you know, there was a moment when uh, he wrapped the towel around him and he opened the door. How was he to know there was a party going on? So splish, splash, he jumped back in the bath. But I mean... You know, even that, he's put a towel around himself. I'm wondering, right, so he, <laughs> he, he comes out of the bath, he puts a towel around himself, and then he finds out there's a party happening outside, and how was he to know? Is he having a bath at someone else's house? I think he might be, and also his claims that they were um, moving and a-grooving, rocking and a-rolling, uh, reeling with the feeling. They must have been reeling with the feeling very quietly. Yeah, or, otherwise he'd have heard. Yeah, or Darren had incredibly noisy baths. Mm. Um, we don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of questions. This, this Do you know? I was in a film. I was in a biopic called Beyond the Sea um, with uh, a, a previously famous actor called Kevin Spacey, oh, and yeah, yeah. Um, and I went for a casting meeting with Kevin Spacey in a hotel room, as you do. And uh, we did impressions of people that we knew. And at the end of that, he went, "Great." So I assume from that you can do an American accent. And I went, yeah. And then he cast me in the movie and I went to Berlin and, and filmed with him for a couple of days and John Goodman. And it was really one of the most amazing experiences of my life, which is, um, you know, is hard to talk about now. But here we are on this podcast. That's incredible, though. I, I was aware of that film. I, 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 excuse my ignorance. I didn't realise you were in it. That's amazing. Well, listen, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> rather like my role in Love, actually, it's a small, but I believe, pivotal scene. <laughs> it's certainly pivotal in, in yeah. Love, actually. Yeah. Without yeah. the rivets, the bridge falls down. You know, you need those little agree. tiny parts. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Moving on, should we get started with your phonographic yeah. memories? So the first song that you've chosen is Plain Song by The Cure. Tell yes. me what's behind this one. So um, all th- so the three songs that I've chosen are actually from a quite a specific uh, moment in my life where there, a big, cha- a huge change happened, which will make sense in a moment. But um, so Plain Song from Disintegration. I was a goth. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was a very fat goth, huge. Oh, me too, man. I, 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 was, quite, I was thinner then, but I, I've grown into a fat goth as time's gone on. <laughs> I was an absolute whopper, and uh, I looked like a zeppelin in, in eyeliner. <laughs> and I had a small bedsit down in Devon um, with, I think I had, well, there were over 60 images of Robert Smith in that small, in that one small room. I was obsessed with how he looked and just everything about him. There was just so much to buy into for someone who was sort of looking inwards and finding only 
sort of, I don't know, gloom and a desire to sort of be loved but not, but be unique and I don't know. So we've all been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, but but the, I suppose the most important thing about that record, other than it's a brilliant, brilliant record. Disintegration's an amazing album, um, and was I think a musical breakthrough f- for The Cure. Uh, so much so that, in fact, it's only the more recent incarnation of them as a band that have been able to play stuff from Disintegration live and make it sound as good as it did on the record. But what was really important was it was the first album that I waited for. Uh, It was the first record that I knew when it was coming out. I read about it. I heard the single and I read all the music press and I had a release date marked in my diary and I saved up my coins and then I went to our price in Exeter and I bought it on tape and uh, and it was just such a moment it was it was a piece of treasure that album because I'd waited for it and because it, it it belonged to me in a way that no other music had up to that point you know there were Cure records that I liked um, that my sister had kind of introduced me to. I had an older sister who was a bit into the Cure and stuff, and she'd introduced me, but they weren't my records. Disintegration was was my record, and uh, there are so many great tunes on there, but Plain Song, um, just the first 40 seconds of it, every time I put it on, I find myself unable to do anything else. It just say, I was, uh, stops me in my tracks. I was just listening to it a few minutes before we started this, because I haven't played it in a long, 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 long time. And that intro is really epic, isn't it? It really just yeah. instantly takes you off somewhere else. Yeah, it's vast. And I've done now, I've been at almost every Edinburgh festival since 1996. I've done 20 or more shows. And every time I've thought, do you know what? I might walk on to Plain Song by The Cure. <laughs> and I'm sort of proud to say I've never yet written the show that justifies it because it's so epic in its scale and so massive you'd have to have a, a, a beginning to a stand-up show that i've not yet been able to write but one day i will first bought that album i would have been 16 wow that was the first album you had to yourself when you were 16 or was it yeah just i mean i had a lot of the most i had a lot of music 
you know, I really liked Pink Floyd and I liked Hendrix and I liked loads of goth music and I liked lots of sort of, I was into the cult and stuff like that. But it was the fact that I met, no, actually I would have been younger than 16, I'd have been 15. But it was the fact that it had a release date that I was aware of and it had that sense of anticipation. And, you know, as much as my two kids have got pretty cool taste in music, the one sadness that I have for them is that the release date of an album is is meaning is close to meaningless yeah. for them, and that, that sense of excitement and anticipation, and then getting getting an album and having to sort of make friends with it, you know, and and there being tracks on there that you don't like that much, yeah. and then sort of coming back to them, and you know, I mean, already with um, uh. Oh god, what's it called? With Lullaby, the the single, mm. um, loads of my gothy mates were going, "Oh, it's a complete sellout. It's as bad <laughs> yeah. as Love Cats." <laughs> I, I can remember that that particular argument going on quite a lot at the time. Um, yeah, but I know what you mean about um, when, you, especially in your teens, quite a lot of music is kind of uh, just accepted around you, and it comes to you things like. Like the Doors and Hendrix are a really good example because I just don't know where I would have got them from, but they were everywhere. Do you know? Yeah. So you had that kind of background, the sort of big, big types of music that you know, like the Floyds and all this sort of thing. Yeah. But there is something about when you make the decision to think, now actually, you know, I'm going to zero in on this, and that's that's my choice. It's not something that someone else has exactly or whatever. And it was important actually to me that none of my close circle of friends were into it. I liked yeah. that. It really was just just for me. I mean, I had a I had a copy of um, Hunky Dory, uh, which I loved, and that was that I had a real sense of connection and ownership with with that album, and it's still my favourite Bowie album. But it, it you know it wasn't it wasn't released in a way that yeah. you know it was released. I can't remember when I was about four probably. Um, but Disintegration was was different from that, and I loved the artwork at that time. I think it was Tim Pope who was yes. producing all of their videos and they, and they had such a style to them that, uh, you know, as well as I could literally see Robert Smith on the screen, which which was delightful to me. And I, I couldn't afford to see The Cure or really get my act together well enough to, um, to sort of arrange that. Even. But I used to tell people that I'd seen them. <laughs> I, I used to look up. <laughs> I used to look up gigs they'd done and go, "Yeah, I was there. It was amazing." Oh, man. <laughs> really were you sad. at the uh, Were you at the Manchester Free Trade Hall as well? For I think for a while I was. I was at. Do you remember the Cure in Orange? Uh huh. They did. They released um, a VHS of the Cure in yes, Orange. Yes. Uh, and it was very cool. Um, and Robert Smith walked out with amazing his huge spiky black pineapple of hair and it turned out it was a wig and he pulled it off and he'd cut his hair really short and I remember being both devastated and elated by the kind of audacity <laughs> of it um but yeah I mean for a while I told people I'd I'd gone to France for that which I think I'd have been, I think I'd have been nine when I did oh, that man. You know, yeah. if it makes you feel good in your head there's nothing wrong with it exactly. it's fine yeah. no one got yeah. hurt no exactly when did you grow out of your of your goth phase and your Robert Smith obsession? When did the when did the pictures of him come down off your wall? Well, so that sort of 
is that sort of would take us to the next track but but what happened was um when i was 17 uh everything came apart so the you know i was i was very overweight which was sort of in its way fine and don't make any judgment about that particular thing but what was causing that was a really dangerous compulsive string of behaviors around alcohol drugs and particularly food and that had that had got so out of control and then when i started adding huge amounts of alcohol and drugs to the top of that um just the wheels came off everything and so by the time i was 17 there was um an intervention and i ended up going into rehab and getting sober and dealing with what turned out to be you know not just a sort of a teenager who likes his grub mm. but a really bad uh psychological emotional spiritual problem that i had with compulsive eating and mm. so this intervention came along and on december the 5th 1990 i went into a rehab center weighing just over 24 stone wow. and seven months later i weighed 11 stone Wow. So I lost, I lost the weight of an average man <laughs> in seven months. It's a, it's a very, very tender age to be in that position as well. Most people who do manage to confront their, their demons or whatever, it takes them yeah. a long, long time. You, you, you really hit it, you know, still in your teens. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, the, the way in which the wheels had come off had meant that really by the age of about 15 i wasn't going home anymore i'd ended up in a school down in devon for it wasn't a borstal but it was kind of a school where you sent kids who who couldn't get in mm. at any schools because no normal school would take them oh, like a, a tutorial unit where they, they yeah just, it was yeah. sort of like exactly so it had you know it was all it wasn't a borstal but doors were locked mm. and alarms yeah. were were on and you know and there were staff called care staff there who were <laughs> no such thing. But um, so I'd ended up there and uh, and that had really meant that going back to my family home had sort of stopped. So, yeah, so I guess it kind of just accelerated really, really quickly for me when I was um, when I was that young. And yeah. uh, so the intervention was sort of inevitable, really. Um, and and needed to happen. Um, so yeah, it was it was very it was very dramatic. And you know, with hindsight, I kind of look at it and think, well, for all that that needed to happen, it, it, you, you could also argue that that process did some harm. Mm. But anyway, um, it's so I'm dramatic, dr isn't it? I mean, you, yeah, you know, Weight loss man. like that is, you know. is a big thing. You know, that's not yeah. something that happens overnight. I mean, it happened incredibly quickly for you, but even yeah. so, those, those are there's effort in every single day of that. So yeah, exactly. And so you know, when I arrived at the rehab centre, um, I was a goth, albeit that my hair was was down and the, I had either no or less makeup than than usual, <laughs> and all of that. But I had, you know, I had a, this, uh, my treasured possession, a black leather jacket with the image from Boys Don't Cry painted on the back. Uh, you know, Robert Smith from behind with the yeah. neck of the guitar sticking out. It's such an iconic um, image. And I kind of arrived uh, at this rehab centre where, you know, 
hanging on to being a goth or even really listening to music. It just wasn't a thing. Wow. So, that, so it all that all stopped. Everything stopped at that time. I, I didn't listen to any music. I wasn't a fan of anything. I just had to focus really, really hard for a block of time on sorting myself out. Really, so. It stopped. It stopped then, when I was seventeen, yeah. like really suddenly. And it was years later that I came back to the Cure, and actually, having sort of grown up a bit, recognised that what I had loved more than anything was the image of the Cure. And it was only years later that musically I looked at what they'd made, especially on records like Pornography and Disintegration, and realised like how sophisticated they were. Yeah. Um, yeah, a new appreciation, I guess. I, I can see how that would, you know, just that being such a hard reset, I can imagine how you would need to kind of shed your skin on that. But I yes. One, one that's quite, it just popped into my mind is that I used to work in computer games and um, for, we often used to have like sort of VIP people come in of Pop World basically to talk about doing soundtracks for games and stuff. And I was at my computer one day and someone came up to me and said, oh, you like The Cure, don't you? I was like, yeah. And he said, well, I'll have a look behind you. And I turned around. And there was Robert Smith. And the best thing about Robert Smith was that he was exactly, exactly what you expect Robert Smith to be. <laughs> he, was, he was still there. He, was still, he had the makeup on. He looked like he'd slept in the back of a mini. He had hairspray and his hair was all kind of half spiked and half flattened on the side. He was in his little white trainers and his, you know, it was like if you'd drawn a caricature, if you'd taken the back of your leather jacket and brought it to life, there he was. I, Thank I, God. I know. Imagine <laughs> if he'd been there in a shell suit. Yeah, it wouldn't it be awful? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he does it for real, you know. And, uh, I think yes. There's something comforting as well, I think, now. Like when I saw them do Glastonbury last, last year or the year before. Yeah. Um, there's something really comforting that he just he hasn't changed at all, really. I mean, the music's changed and evolved in, in glorious ways. But uh, yeah. very much his own man, his own band. They're all, yeah, they're yeah. all they'll move Don't... to their rhythm, you know. Do you know what I mean when I say that the, that the band now are more capable of playing what they recorded in the studio? Like, yeah. I don't know that every Cure fan or, or goth or ex-goth would agree with that, but when I saw, I saw them at Bestival a few years ago, when I saw the Glastonbury set, and I listened to that compared to some of their earlier live stuff, I think they're, I think they're an astonishing band now. Um, yeah, I think just they've... Just brilliant. They, They've had their up and downs as well because Cure is one of those bands, you know, it started off with the three of them. Yeah. Um, and it went up to a seven or eight piece and then back yeah. down. And, you know, and it's like an accordion sized band, you know. Mm, um, mm. But there's definitely been periods where everyone's been on it, like the Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me tour and all that, when they, they mm. had that really strong band and Simon Gallup was in there and Tollhurst was still in there. And then, and then there were other periods. Possibly due to, you know, some problems. I know Lowell Tolhurst had, had big problems yeah. with alcohol for a while. And I think that had an effect on their ability to play and, and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I suppose if you do anything for 30 years, you're going to have peaks and troughs. But I definitely think when you saw that last Glastonbury set, they were unhurried masters doing yes. things that only they can do. Absolutely. And, you know, the festival set as well had been so good. They released it as a double album. Um, it was astonishing. And I think there was less time limit at Bestival as well, so they played for the full four hours or whatever. They they will go on, won't they? They, they, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as Simon Gallup's guitar now is literally an inch off the ground, 
Um, I've no idea how he plays uh, in that stance, but bless him, he looks magnificent. <laughs> Always one of my favourites. Yeah. to listen to the cure now or or is it a completely different experience? Oh, that's a great question uh no but it did for ages mm. it did and every time i sort of tried to go back to them it actually felt wrong it felt like it didn't fit and sort of that it, it i was trying to be something that i wasn't anymore or that it, almost like a sense of guilt with listening to it because it had been so associated <clears throat> so associated with a bad time in my life um but i can't I, i'm not really sure when i when it was that i found my way back to them certainly you know i don't know like tw 15 20 years ago and since then have remained a huge fan so um it's easy to listen to them now it is a, an interesting thing that uh, when you really bond with an album as opposed to just liking something when you really get deep with something then i mean mm. this is why we have this section really because it hits you at that time and and at that time it just resonates louder and longer and harder than it will ever again for your life and yep. when you look back you know you get a tiny glimpse of who you were at that time and and i mean with the the story you told you can see the the, the not just who you were but a metamorphosis of what happened to you you know and yeah it must, yeah yeah it must really be you know, that's a deep, heavy thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's why, you know, it's it's why it was, it didn't take me long. Uh, and when you sent the, when you sent the criteria for what this was, I was like, okay, well, definitely something from Disintegration. Mm. And or, and then that was only 10 seconds before I went, it's got to be plain song. Mm -hmm. Just because of the impact as a first track on an <laughs> album that that has. And, and, you know, I think that it, it's a really good example of a record where the whole album is its own piece of work. You know, it has a it has a through line to it. It has a feel to it. I mean, I I've never really understood. They claim that that um, pornography, disintegration, and blood flowers are a trilogy, um, and I, I I've never really known what makes those three records a trilogy other than they once performed all of them. Uh, you know. In, in one gig, which must have been about seven hours, I think. But um, did you go to that one too? You were there. Yes, let's say I did. <laughs> we were all there at the bar having a great yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we had VIP tickets and shit. Do you know, there's yeah. a really, there's a really sweet story. Dom Jolly, when he was making Trigger Happy TV, like Dom Jolly's been a really huge um, Cure fan all of his life as oh, well. Yeah. Um, he's another sad, inward-looking posh boy like me. We should speak to him. Yeah, yeah, you <laughs> should. Case. So. He, when Dom Jolly got a kind of, um, what did he have? It was sort of like a, an interview show. Um, 
Robert Smith was on there and Dom Jolly was sort of beside himself with excitement. And the story goes that, um, uh, that Dom Jolly invited Robert Smith back to his house and uh, went, like, he was so excited and he went off into the loo and he phoned someone and said, look, I, I don't really know how to tell you this, but Robert Smith is here. He's actually here in my house. He's literally here in my house right now and I'm so excited. I just had to tell someone. And when he came back out of the loo, Robert Smith was on his phone going, uh, he overheard him going, yeah, I mean, I'm literally in Dom Jolly's house right now. I'm literally, yeah, the trigger happy guy. I'm literally in his house right now. I don't know if that's true, but I really hope it is. I just thought it was such a sweet story. Oh, what amazing. a what a moment for Dom Jolly that must have been. I know, right? I, I, I'm totally geeking out, but this is amazing. It's like, <laughs> oh, he knows who I am. That's yeah. so strange. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd have thought Robert Smith would be a massive fan of Trigger Happy TV? But there that's we are. Of surprises. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Should we move on then to your to your second phonographic memory? Yes. So then, as I said at the beginning, like these these three album or these three songs are really all sort of tied together. So when before I got helped before the intervention and all the rest of it, the whole thing that I was stuck in uh, was just looking in. And the more that you indulge a sort of self-destructive behavior like an eating disorder or alcoholism or drug addiction or, or whatever, the more you go in to yourself and the less you, you become able to imagine that other people might be feeling or experiencing the same thing, right? That's mm. really what lots of mental health conditions um, seem to lead to is this loss of empathy and connection and, and perspective and that's definitely what was going on for me you know um so when rem who i'd been a i'd been a fan of sort of off and on i'd always liked their stuff i'd never gone crazy for one record or another but when they released automatic for the people and i heard everybody hurts it was one of those, um, and I suppose actually this slightly undoes what I'm saying, but it was one of those songs where I felt like it had been written for me. Mm. Yeah. But it felt like it had been written for me because I'd had this transformative moment of just looking inwards, feeling sorry for myself, feeling caught up only in my own problems and how I would deal with them and how tomorrow any minute now I was going to change and then never did and it was only when I started looking outwards and recognizing oh lots of people are like this and actually working with other people um is how I've changed everything for good in in my life and so that sentiment in that record of everybody hurts it's just a simple idea and of course they do and it's in poetry and it's in literature and it's in lots of music but it was so simply put and beautifully sung by michael stipe it really really moved me and it's really hugely important like the only stuff i feel in my life that's really dangerous is when i start to feel um that my 
problems or my concerns are unique to me. Mm. Uh, it's a really dangerous path for me to follow as someone who has a sort of a, a connection with addiction as, as an anaesthetic. Mm. Um, as soon as I remember actually lots and lots of people are struggling with this and similar problems, then it's all okay. Mm. And it's a song that still uh, can make me cry in a good way or make me smile. And the video was stunning. Oh, it was yeah, so it's cool. Um, so yeah, it's just like it's a song that's, that's so deep in my heart and means so much to me and I love it. When your day is long And the night The night is yours alone When you're sure you've had enough Of this those ones where uh, if you don't if you don't focus in on it like you can kind of you can skim read that track uh, and just like everybody hurts it's almost like uh, a throwaway kind of it's too simple it's too yes. simple aligned yeah. you know what i mean if you'd written that down you'd probably scribble out and go nah i, I can do better than that I'll, if everybody feels like I, you know you try and expand upon it but sometimes it's those little kernels of perfectly formed ideas they're so honest that you can't help but uh, but bring that emotion out. You know, the Beach Boys were very good at that. Um, this, with, yeah. With, with Asher, sometimes I feel very sad and things like that. It's a very, very simple, almost childlike way of writing the lyric. But because it is so perfectly formed, the emotional response is, is almost guaranteed, you know, once yeah. you actually listen to it. And it's such a... You know, in, in the lyric, it's such a simple and really defiant rejection of, of the bad idea, mm. by which I mean, you know, when Michael Stipe sings and you feel like you're alone and then almost angrily he goes, no, 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 you're not alone. Mm. Is this like this insistence on it three times? No, 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 you're not alone. Mm. It's like a, a, a complete rejection of that bad idea because it, I really feel it is a bad idea and it's it's the most dangerous place. I've only seen REM once and that was at the Live 8 concert and this is true by the way this is not me making up that I was at a thing. <laughs> One of your flights of fancy. Yeah 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 and it was so I just loved it. I was really excited to see REM play there anyway. There were loads of people I was excited to see. Uh, I mean, I barely saw Pink Floyd because I just wept through the entire thing. It was so <laughs> emotional. Uh, but everyone who was on came out onto that stage and they all said something like, just amazing to be here. Let's hear it. Mm. Uh, 
and they all said something and it, and you know of course because it was massive and it was connected to all these concerts around the world and it was huge and it was sunny and it was Hyde Park and it felt important and so you know I did enjoy all those people having a chat with the crowd Michael Stipe who was bald uh, and still is I imagine um, had a sort of almost navy blue indigo-ish stripe across his face from his nose up to his forehead and he walked up to the microphone and said we're REM and this is what we do and bam just launched into the first song and it was so cool it was so cool and it was sort of maybe like the confidence of knowing nothing more needs to be said we're here to play music we're a band and and just it's absolutely got me i thought it was so great we're rem and this is what we do Bam, and off they went no kind of acknowledgement oh, it was fantastic yeah. such a good choice i think it's amazing actually um like in a world where there's so much irony to have a song like that that's so earnest and the video is so earnest and like makes no apology for it and mm. connects so well it's such a great choice yeah. So when when this came to you, this is like after you shed your gothic skin. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so where where were you moving at that time? What was what, well, what, I'm I'm a bit unclear about the release date because I, I, you know, it certainly didn't, it certainly didn't come out. Do you know when Automatic for the People was released? Ninety three, maybe. It was nineties, early nineties, and ninety one, ninety three, something like that. I mean, I know it was around that time, you know, that I was only sort of a year or so into being sober. And so the world around me was was very different. I was still having to make amends for some of the mess that I'd made in the life that I'd led before. And I was still getting used to a very changed existence, you know, one of complete sobriety, no alcohol, no drugs, and being incredibly boundaried around food and that was a very weird experience for for an 18 year old and also you know i was celibate for a while you know for for more than a year um which when you've been 24 stone and you go down to 11 stone is no small thing so i i think in my mind i've sort of conflated it that all of it happened in a very small amount of time but i think it probably came out a year or two after i'd um, sobered up it's, yeah. it was ni- 1992 it came out. 92, which, yeah, so there you go. So <laughs> I got sure. sober I got sober December the 5th, 1990. So I'd have been like a year, a year and a half sober when it came wow. out, which is really when <laughs> you start connecting up better ideas, you know that when you when you sober up, you don't you don't sort of figure it out for a while. You then you live in a sort of vacuum for a bit. And then you work out what it was that was compelling you to behave in that way. And then you start working out how you're going to live a new and and a different life. So, yeah, 92 would be absolutely perfect. No wonder it it got me in the in the soft spot, you know. (laughs) Um, Bit of a departure then for your third and final. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about uh, this. Tell us about this last one. Yes. So this is Cubic by 808 State. Uh, and this would be a tune that I, I doubt I could listen to all of it now. <laughs> and I don't mean it's, all it's of the album. It's a banger, album. Marcus. It's a banger. <laughs> I mean all of all of the song. I can tell you that the, the beginning of it, 
still, like, it just makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. So having been a goth, right, and having only liked sort of, I liked some, I liked some drug music. I was into gong, and I liked a bit of sort of Neil Young and stuff like that, you know. And I liked Hendrix because it felt very druggy. Um, but predominantly having been a goth, and then really having just gone without music for a while, and having lost all of this weight, I was suddenly eleven stone in early. 1991 or thereabouts though not early 91 was the first time i heard cubic and i'd been around sort of acid house you know my friends were into it in the late 80s and they'd all go out to clubs and i angrily hated that music mm. i hated how repetitive it was and how boring and how everyone who was into it was jumping up and down and smiling and hugging each other. It absolutely and... was a, a huge divide because I had oh. the same same background. I was a goth and then suddenly I, I went to the eclipse and, and you know, yeah. I was a raver and it happened in like three, four weeks suddenly and the whole exactly. world turned upside down. But so the, the split yeah. between your friends, the ones yeah, that, and it was that massive. not into that. Yeah, and, and like the, the few mates from Devon who were actually finding clubs that were playing you know, late 80s, early 90s rave music. I was sort of baffled by that. And what I did here, I was like, oh, this is the worst music in the world. And then suddenly I'm 11 stone and my body was new. It was like a toy to me, you know. It, it just, I was capable of moving in ways that I had literally not been able to move. It's like being freed from a physical prison. And this tune came on. And it, it was so simple and so raucous and just went, <laughs> and I was like, this is incredible. And I played it and then I played it again and then I played it again. And I think I spent a day just playing, <laughs> playing that song and making these shapes, like physically making these shapes and uh, still wouldn't really admit that I liked that kind of music. And then I left rehab, I moved to London and a friend of mine, I was talking to him about that tune and a few others in that area. And he said, you should come to a, a night called Rage at Heaven. Oh, and yeah. uh, Heaven was sort of fam a famous gay club at, um, at Embankment. And we went and I queued for ages for like well over an hour going, this is mm. so weird. What are we doing? But at that time, I was very interested in new experiences, you know. And we walked into this club and I had never seen anything like it in my life. And as far as I was concerned, every tune they played was was a version of um, Cubic by 808 State, mm, yeah. but better 
and bigger. And just when I thought I couldn't feel any happier, bear in mind, no drugs. I would have been the only person in the club with no drugs in his system. Um, all of these lasers came on and a load of professional dancers appeared on a stage and just threw shapes and the music got louder and was better. And I was completely and utterly scooped up into that world of like early 90s dance music yes. and cubic was cubic was was the way in and then was, as you mentioned in the intro i i i was dancing at ministry of sound which i did every saturday anyway and i got talent spotted and then became a a, a podium dancer how that, well, how, so you must have been extraordinarily good to have been I well, just thinking like I, i've thrown my heart and soul into dozzy no one's ever asked to watch <laughs> But here's the thing, right? Here's what happened. I I still think at ministry and others, there was my friend James who came with me, sadly no longer with us, but he had a heart condition, so he didn't take drugs either. But we, I really believe, were the only people. I and mean, this is when ministry mm. had no liquor license, mm. yeah. right? At which it stayed like that, I think, for about 18 months or so. So everyone was just there to dance. No one was there to, to pose or to get drunk. It was just the dance, right? And I had this I had this new body, this brand new body. Um, and I just explained before, you know, it was it was literally like being freed from a prison. And so my dancing wasn't necessarily all that good, but my God, it was exuberant. <laughs> I mean Best I took way. up I took up all the space around me, big arms, big legs a lot of height. I'm a tall bloke. I'm six foot two and I was as thin as a rake and I would just dance with so much like energy. I think it was more that. And I, you know, I, I believe now in the work that I do, I'm always banging on about this, that you, the, the only, the only pleasurable thing to watch really is pleasure. That's not to say, but you know, actors who who are playing pain can can do so uh, in a in a very realistic way. But they must love what they're doing, and you can't hate the drunk uncle at a wedding who's loving it. Yes. You can be angry with him if he knocks people over, but people who are loving what they're doing are a delight to watch. And I think, like, I was so happy at that time in my life, so happy. Oh, um, that I think I was, uh, I hope I was anyway, a delight to watch because I had the biggest smile on my face um, and just danced like, danced like no one was watching and but loved the fact that everyone was. Yeah. <laughs> Coming from a, a similar kind of background where, you know, well, you know, essentially it was all leather jackets and standing at the side looking a bit miserable and, you know, yeah. occasionally, occasionally we'd wreck. We used to wreck. Do you ever wreck? We used to kind of bump into each other on the on the dance floor and sort of mini punch each other, but not really want to get in a fight. Yeah. So we used to do that a little bit uh, when I was a goth. Um, and then when I went to clubs for the first time and, and what the energy of the new music, because it was like it fallen from the sky. No one had yeah. done anything like it. And they've just reissued all the Rage albums, actually. Uh, oh, amazing. 
and that you know just tune after tune after tune and i can remember hearing everyone for the first time going where's it come from how does that even exist and yeah that kind of shock of the new and the 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 ability to suddenly it be all right to dance and express yourself not to fake fight or or look yeah. moody but to actually just throw a shape literally exactly. make a shape with your body was so liberating to me yeah uh, and I, I i remember the first time i went to a club i was i was still heavily gothed and i had uh, super tight black jeans on and a grateful dead t-shirt <laughs> tie-dyed huh. everything uh, and i spent the entire night dragging my black jeans back up my ass because you got so yeah. hot and sweaty every movement just dragged them back down again but i yeah, remember coming yeah. out with the same sort of feeling of just feeling like um Oh, how have I been so reserved and so trapped and so unable yeah. to dance like this before? And, and and what a what a joy it is to just say fuck it! Isn't it amazing it. how music music just opens a door like that? You know, Definitely. and that I, I just like you and I had rejected all of that, and it mm. got so that we would queue for rage, and I never I never cared about being in there early because it was never about posing so we used to queue an hour before the doors opened um for a while actually with with rage you could go into a club next door called uh, the brain at the drum which played uh, like euro techno which was really fun for an hour and then awful <laughs> then but you could heaven. you could sneak from there into heaven you could oh, literally it's... like a back door into heaven oh, and so you so get without pain well, yes. Yeah. So we used to pay, I think, eight quid to get into into the brain, and then we'd sneak in, into heaven for eight <laughs> entry into heaven for for nice eight quid. Lag, but nice um, but when we used to queue up in February, we would never wear a jacket, not because it was cool to not wear a jacket. We were freezing, but because dealing with dropping your coat off, yes, right, was more than we could bear. The moment we we went through the door we went and found a space and just danced oh, like wonderful. immediately. Um, and, and so we never, we'd never ever wear a jacket because the idea of having a queue again and yeah. deal with that once you got in there was just too much. It's, it's actually the thing I hate most about any kind of live event is uh, you, it's always freezing outside and you get inside and it's absolutely boiling hot. And then you're yeah. there holding a coat or you're paying two quid yeah, and yeah. queuing up for time. Ah, balls for that. Yeah, yeah. I was trying, <laughs> we had a couple of, um, Clubbers, rave, rave type people uh, on the show so far, and uh, um, one of the things that has really opened Anne's mind up is the notion that anyone would queue for anything. <laughs> 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 but those days we did. We used to queue for well, hours. Well, I'm extremely hours. high maintenance. I mean, my <laughs> trick is just to walk up to the door and be like, "I'm the DJ," and uh, you know, if you way. say it with enough conviction, yeah. then uh, anyone will believe you. That's so cool. Do you know there was a thing? Um, so do you remember? The, do you remember Sasha? Oh yeah. yeah. The DJ. So yeah. at the time, Sasha was the pinnacle of the music that I was most into, which was um, house music where you could beat mix so perfectly mm. that one track was played for the whole night. Mm. Yeah, and there was never style, yeah. there was never a change. And in fact, what I really loved was you'd go and listen to that or dance to that for two hours, and then go into the bar where Andy Weatherall was playing. And he'd be playing stuff like that, but then he'd play um, Smells Like Teen Spirit all yeah. of a sudden. So, you know, it wasn't all like that. But no one knew what any of these DJs looked like. And there was mm -hmm. a bloke who got busted who'd been playing clubs in the north as Sasha and nailing <laughs> it, apparently very, very good. No one knew. 
but he'd just show up and go, yeah, yeah, I'm Sasha. You know, he'd take the booking and everything. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he got away with it for about a year. I got paid I, big bucks, presumably, as I Huge, amazing. huge money. <laughs> he actually yeah, got yeah, yeah. paycheck. Wow. Yeah. I used to go yeah. to a, a club called um, Milwaukee's Helter Skelter. Yeah. And uh, I knew the guy, Dave Prattley, who kind of ran the night. And he said, I think it was DJ Fantasy, but it was the first time they booked this guy. And... Um, DJ Fantasy arrived and they were like, Yeah, come through, you're not on for a couple of hours. And then DJ Fantasy arrived. He <laughs> was like, ah. but I thought, and then suddenly there was like a third DJ Fantasy. And they were like, You're not coming in, mate. And of course, that was <laughs> DJ Fantasy. <laughs> like, Who hard at the door, and then eventually it went, went all good. Oh, yeah. Instagram. Yeah, thank Christ for that, eh? Oh, you'd have been all right, because you you you'd all live with your new body and your dance skills. But um yeah, yeah. I'm really pleased there's no pictures of me out there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you know, people are always asking, Oh, you know, can we see see a picture of you as a goth? No. Or see a picture and not like, well. <laughs> No, and also, you know, someone with a camera. Imagine, like, being in a club in those days and having a camera. People would have been like, what is your deal? CID, mate. You weirdo. Look at the shoes. Yeah, exactly. Is is he wearing trainers or are they boots? Because if they're boots, he's police. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But, yeah, and, uh, you know, I stayed a huge, huge fan of of that kind of dance music. Mm. So that started, for me, in a probably... 1991 through 92 and, and all the rest of it and then I that, stayed a massive fan of all of that until I went to uni in 96 97 and even then actually I was still into it and used to go to Metalheads in mm. Bristol um, got really really into drum and bass and stuff and then I kind of then I sort of fell out I, more to be honest because I was then gigging as a stand up mm. so going to clubs just stopped because I was busy every every night. That period across the nineties, though, as well, like it started with this huge bang and tracks mm. like like Cubic uh, that just yeah. came from nowhere and this whole new style of music. But then the following seven eight years, uh, everything just melded wonderfully, and so many yeah. different styles came popping up. Like I say, uh, drum and bass and jungle, which is his own thing, and you yeah. know, garage and. Um, deep techno and Euro techno and trance techno, you know, all these different things. They're all going on. And then slowly, because of the success that that was happening, you could see it bleeding through into regular pop music. And yeah. you know, you'd get Pulp talking about going to a rave, or you'd, yeah, you know, yeah. Stone Roses even doing the, the, the Fool's Gold and stuff, you know. It, yeah. It was all just break. It, it was so new that then it kind of opened all the doors. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Could just bring something new to the table. Yeah, yeah, and it's amazing too, uh, you know, listening to some of that stuff from the early 90s, which at the time felt, if nothing else, like it it had a high BPM. You listen to it now, you're like, oh, this is slow. Oh, man, (laughs) it's slow. But it did, it got too quick for a bit. Like I I got really into, by in about sort of 93, 94, I guess, into the European like Gabba techno yes. stuff, I was an just and all that. insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind I've got of one stuff, that's you know. I got one uh, called called Nanda Clart, which is a, a Rotterdam techno record. Yeah, and it, the, the cover is brilliant. It's got a man wheeling his own bollocks in a wheelbarrow, <laughs> and, and uh, Arsenander Clark. I didn't know at the time, but apparently it translates to everything is bollocks. <laughs> right, and it was it was a ludicrous two hundred and fifty BPM. 
Yeah, bang on. I mean, that is just a woodpecker, isn't it? That's... Yeah. <laughs> do you remember Thousand by Moby? Oh, yeah, Which I played that a lot, man. It didn't really do very much other than get faster. And I, I just think, used to start it? sets with it, and people would go fucking mental. They would, there was you know... hard, hard heads as well, um, mm. something of New York. can't remember, oh, but that was another the... one that just went faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And we used to, like dance on the beat to that one until you were literally just having a seizure you know? but it was so it was it was funny as well yeah. like it was we were serious about the dancing we were serious about the music but all of it was funny we really laughed so much and we it. used to you know with no drugs we would dance until seven or eight in the morning and then go home and and try and like keep it going you know didn't well, last for very nine. long. That was, but... That's always the best yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Get back and say, yeah, exactly. Well, let's, yeah. let's play through the 12s and see what we've got. Yeah, I, I was yeah. interested in, because in, uh, my experience is like yours, but I perhaps was less holy and uh, and healthy. But it's interesting because having gone through all that and really experienced what sounds like, you know, quite a hardcore clubbing experience. Mm. Um, now, a lot of my friends, as we've got to the ages we're at now, you know, a lot of them look back at that and obviously they don't, they don't do their drugs anymore and they, it's, life's changed immeasurably. And a lot of them can't listen to it anymore. And I wondered, like, can you still listen to those, like, the, the really pure drug techno stuff, can you still listen to that and really still get no. the same buzz off it? No, not really. I mean, I the starts of all of those tracks, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the start of Cubic. Yeah. yeah, once you've done the, <laughs> you're like, okay, now. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> like, do you remember a track called The Ride? Yes. And it began with this sample, just... him going, now, that's I don't a good go. idea. Come on, let's go. Yeah. Come on. That's right. And then it began, and like, you know, those sorts of things with like little samples and stuff, like they still make the hairs on the back of my neck mm, stand on end. Yeah. And the beginning of the track definitely does. But uh, yeah, you know, I think I get, I get bored of it. You know, yeah. I, I have, I definitely have less tolerance for it. But, you know, some of the tracks at the time, like, say, Rhythm is a Dancer, which is, you know, it's a ridiculous song, really, which I'd have mostly rejected as having been too commercial. I can definitely still listen to that all the way through. Yeah. I think, I it's, think... I think it's a cracker. And, you know, the huge tunes, you know, like Insomnia by Faithless and stuff, you know, I think that, that little... sound... A lot of those are more song-driven, do you know what I mean? They, they, exactly. It is actually a yeah. song, whereas I think what we were referring to a minute ago, those techno tracks, they weren't really built to last anyway. As a matter of fact, they weren't even no. built to, to listen to on their own. They were built to put together with other they tracks. Were part, yeah, they were building blocks for a set. If so, you weren't mixing them, they don't have the same context, they don't yeah. have the same artistry. There's a box set that I had, a Dreamscape box set, which was... I think nine discs or something like mm. that. And that had, you know, happy techno, Euro techno, house, garage, and all the rest of it. And those were great because actually you got probably 50 seconds, maybe 90 seconds of most of these tunes before they'd moved on to the next one. And that was what we were doing at the time. And it was really the, the best DJs were the ones who understood that the next moment had to strike at the right time. Yeah. And that that would change what was happening, and give you that feeling again. It's exactly what the, what the DJs discovered when they first started creating hip hop. 
you know, working out that those soul records all had a moment in them that made people yeah. feel something yeah. and that you could just play them again and again and again. So I don't listen to much of that kind of music <clears throat> anymore. Uh, but you know, I still feel excited when it comes on. And actually a great place for it is the car. You know, <laughs> oh, I yes. drive when, when we're not on lockdown, I do thousands of miles going to perform and do gigs and I can put one of those um, mixes on or whatever in the car and do a happy two hours of bouncing up and down in my seat as I crawl along the M1. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't drive, but I have a, I enjoy it when I'm a passenger in the car. But I find that type of music where you've got it continually mixed and stuff, um, they're really good uh, for when you want to go somewhere or where there's an end goal. I like if I did if, before I had a dishwasher, washing up was like the worst <laughs> thing in the world. But you yeah. stick on a techno mix. And then you kind of you're in the tumble dryer of the mix, and then suddenly you finish the washing up, and it's bloody. Yeah, nice. exactly. <laughs> and those those are the cleanest dishes you will yes, ever have, especially at it... 250 BPM. Yeah, 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 yeah. Scraping away. Yeah. Oh, should we all go out clubbing when all this is over? This yes. Man. You'll put us all to shame. Yeah, you can yeah. you can get us on the list now as well, Anne. <laughs> yeah. We'll just walk up with her and she'll be like, I ain't queuing, I'm yeah. the DJ, let me in. Just yeah, obnoxious, yeah. that's my trick. Although if you're a DJ, we're, we're not going to get cubic, are we? <laughs> you know who You know who I, I, I saw? I was in Ibiza a few years ago with my brother and we waited to see Magnetic Man at something oh, like four brilliant. in the morning. Yeah. And watched about 10 minutes of them and went, oh, well, if you can't be bothered, neither can we. <laughs> and went through next door. Do you know Hannah Wants? No. Uh, I've, so I've... She's, a, she's a DJ and, and record producer. And she's got, she's got her own thing going on. But the nearest parallel I could draw was Andy Wetherill mm -hmm. in that she will play something. She'll play, you know, sort of serious dance music followed by some bouncy old scar tune yeah. cut with a, a you know a, a, a clump and jump um hip-hop tune mm -hmm. back into the dance music and then just moves it around throws it around all yeah. the all the time she is amazing live that's the um, hardest thing to do i think when you're, when you're yeah and out. she just nails it i think she's brilliant i'm a big big fan and mind. um shy effects as well mm. yeah massive fan of shy effects he um, does he does a killer reggae set as well. Yeah. He's oh not, my he's lord. Not doing the jungle, the reggae oh. set. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Well, his his last album, the uh, Ragamuffin Sound Clash, is it or Ragamuffin mm. Sound Tape? That uh, I think this is literally a quote from a review, but it, it happens to be true. That is Carnival on a single, on yeah. a single album. It's Notting Hill Carnival on a single album. In that it's reggae, it's drum and bass, it's dance music, it's raucous, it's, it's incredible. So And thankfully you aren't waddling along at naught miles an hour for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hours at a time. Exactly. You can, you yeah, can yeah. go to the toilet and get whatever you want, you know? Yeah. yeah. I like I like the carnival like as a as an idea, but whenever I'm in it I just have these uh, tremendous yeah, it's panic <laughs> being jostled. I yeah. hate that even more than I hate queuing. Hey, socially distant <laughs> carnival is going to be great for you, isn't it? That's you know? true. We're all oh, two metres apart. I'd be like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Marcus Brinkstock, thank you so much for sharing your phone. No problem. Memories with thank you. My absolute pleasure. Um, that was a journey. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Well, that's the aim, isn't it? I mean, I could do one of these podcasts every week for a different little section of my life. But that's, we'll have you back. We'll have you back. No? That's you and probably really interchangeable. Peas in a pod. It's probably quite a good moment that from yeah. from disintegration through 
this every yeah. moment of recognizing my problems are not that important to the absolute stupid joy of jumping up and down to dance music it's pretty transformative really, that sort of thing is exactly what we're after here because you know Music does tell a story, and I think too yeah. often people focus on what was the writer thinking at this time. Well, it's not the writer that it affects, as yes. you know, it's, it's the public that it it's affects. The and and yeah. those three tunes you've pulled out there from very different artists, and certainly, you know, a, a, a hard left turn into dance music at the yeah. end. But, you know, you've told a really interesting story about three points in your life, and without the music, life would have been very different and I very think that's, different. that's what yeah. we're trying to zoom in on and what 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 gives me joy when i think about music and i think about people sharing music and sharing their experiences is when you get a little little peek into someone's soul like that and a mm. story that that could only have happened to you at that time and i think that's the perfect perfect thing for us so thank you so oh, much good no my pleasure thanks for having me it really helped to um recreate the whole club atmosphere sitting under this duvet for it what's your name where you come from what you've done do you want to drink a water yeah <laughs> oh classic days it's called days. european bob yeah yeah oh yeah european bob everyone everyone's seen him but you can never find him can you friends for life um, Hey, this has been wonderful. Um, I'm going to faint from exhaustion from underneath this duvet. So <laughs> thank you this. so much, Marcus. And, uh, Pleasure. Lovely to talk with you guys. You too. See you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye.